Last week we finished with these I am statements, so there, there are no more I am statements to, to look at, but there is one statement I do want us to consider before we begin a new series next week, and that's a statement not made by Jesus, but one made by John, John the Baptist. And this statement is a reflection of himself. He's considering himself in light of who Jesus is, and so he has both in mind who Jesus is and who he is. And this is actually a very good thing for us to consider uh, who we are as human beings and who it is that Jesus is. We've been doing that a little bit through the I am sayings, but we've been focusing more on who Christ is, right? We've been doing basic Christology. And so for this morning, I want us to do a little bit of anthropology. Now, we're still going to consider who Jesus is, but, but who we are in light of him. And this is wise for us to do. I mean, after all, John Calvin, so if, if you ever need backing for what you want to do, John Calvin's a good guy to have backing from. He said in the beginning of his institutes that true and sound wisdom consists in two parts, the knowledge of God and the knowledge of ourselves. And so that's what I want us to do this morning. We're going to consider ourselves in light of who Jesus is. We're going to do that by looking at John 1. So let's read, beginning in verse 19 of John 1. And this is the testimony of John, when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, I wonder how many of y'all know what a humble brag is. Do you all know what that is? Humble brag? A few of us? Okay. Uh, a humble brag. If, if you don't know what it is by definition, then you, you've at least experienced it. You've heard it. You maybe just didn't know that you were hearing it. You've heard it on Facebook and Twitter. You've maybe heard it uh, from friends or maybe even in your own mind you've heard a humble brag. Uh, I went online to find a definition because, believe it or not, that word's not found in Webster's. So... Um, so you go online to find what is true. And um, <laughs> in one urban dictionary does defined humble brag as this, uh, making a modest or self-deprecating statement with the actual intent of drawing attention to something of which one is proud. Okay, so basically a humble brag is a way of being prideful without sounding prideful, you know, sounding humble. So it, it goes something like this. Maybe you've heard heard, or, or maybe you've said one of these before, um, you know, it's, it's been a really hard morning. I mean, it was really tough this morning. The run was, man, it was brutal. I only ran 20 miles, right? Yeah, have you, have you heard? Yeah, okay. Um, or, um, 
Or I feel so bad for my daughter because she has to settle for her second choice of college. She only got into Yale. You know, like, you guys have heard these sorts of statements, right? And, and maybe you've said them yourself. And, uh, and basically what we're doing with the humble brag is, is we're trying to glorify ourselves without sounding as though we're trying to glorify ourselves. We're trying to be prideful while sounding humble. And, and almost every one of us do this. In fact, uh, I, I got a little nervous when I started thinking about using this illustration as though maybe some of y'all would think I'm calling you out. Like I read something on Facebook and this is my, uh, this is my passive aggressive way of telling you I saw it. <laughs> and, uh, and then my fears dissipated like I didn't get worried about it anymore because I realized something. We all do this. <laughs> I'm not calling out one person. I'm calling out me and y'all, right? Like, not too long ago, a friend of mine on Twitter put Penny, hashtag, humblebrag. Like, I did it, and he called me on it. We all do this. We all do it because we want glory. We do it because we want, we want to be uh, the center of attention. We do it because we want other people to look at us and think, man, that is a great guy. We have this desire for glory, but we also have this competing awareness that pride and arrogance aren't virtuous, right? Like, those aren't things that uh, people in our culture find value in. Pride and arrogance, right? We all know this. We, we roll our eyes at the prideful. We huff at the know-it-all. And no one likes the guy who brings attention to themselves. We know this, and yet we still want glory. And so we have these competing dilemmas in our hearts, right? We want to be lifted up, and yet we know we should not lift ourselves up. And so we humble brag. We want this acknowledgement and honor, and we want glory, and yet this is the very thing that we need to resist. I mean, at, over the last seven weeks of looking at Jesus' I am statement, I hope at least one thing we walk away from is that the person that we are to boast in is not the person that looks at us in the mirror. That the one that we are to make much much of is actually the one who is making those seven statements, that he is the one that we are to be lifting up. And subsequently, that means that we are actually to be resisting that glory that we are so longing for, that we are to resist that acknowledgement and that honor that we are searching after. We resist this glory, and that's exactly what John does in this passage. He resists glory. He resists his own glory, and he does this first by knowing himself. He knows himself. He shows an accurate depiction of who he is. The priests and the Levites, they come and ask him who he is. And in verse 20, we read, He confessed and did not deny, but confess, I am not the Christ. I am not the Christ. Those are, those are some really good words. I am not the Christ. What's interesting is that he identifies himself with the negative first. Do you notice that? Like, they come and ask who you are, and he, he begins with a negation, not with a positive. How different is this than, than us, right? Like, like, when someone comes to you and says, hey, who are you? <laughs> uh, what do you do? We don't list off all the negative things about us, right? We lead with what's positive, the things that we value, the things that we think make us look good. But, but John leads with, I am not. And what's more amazing is there were so many things he could have talked about that were unique to who he was, right? I mean, if we look to the Gospel of Luke and hear of his account, his birth account, angels foretold he would be born. And anybody? anybody? No, of course not, right? Like, that's a unique birth. Angels foretold that he would be born. 
And, and his parents were of old age, such old age that his, they were beyond the age of, of bearing children. And so his birth was miraculous. And he was filled in the womb by the Holy Spirit. There were so many unique things about John's particular calling from God that he could have went on for hour after hour about it. And yet that's not what he does. He doesn't list off all these things that made him unique and made him a great man and made him one who maybe would be deserving of honor. No, he led with, I am not. I am not. He doesn't claim his own glory, but he goes beyond that. He goes beyond that. He starts comparing himself to Jesus. And in verse 27, what does he say about Jesus? He says, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. Okay, so in this culture... Um, a student would be required to do basically whatever a teacher asked of him. That was the expectation. The teacher would come and say, I want you to go do this or go do that. I want you to follow me. I want you to listen, these sorts of things. And the student would obey him, would fall into line, except for in this one instance. You see the, the untying of the strap of the sandal and anything to do with the feet was reserved only for slaves and not for students. So when... When John says that Jesus' straps, he is, not un, he is unworthy to even untie the straps of Jesus' sandals, what he's saying that, is that in comparison to Jesus, he is less than even a slave. That in comparison to Christ, that all the privileges he should have as a student, actually, they, they are nothing because he is less than a slave. That's what he's saying. Now listen, John, John kind of sounds like he's being a little self-deprecating, doesn't he? Maybe even a little self-despising. If, if someone said these sorts of things in, in our time, in our culture, a friend of yours, how, how would we respond to them? Well, our culture would probably say to them, oh, you're just being too hard on yourself. For goodness sakes, you're, you're great. People love you. You're a somebody. Right? You just need more self-esteem. You need to think better of yourself, right? Like that, that's what we would say. But John's not being self-deprecating, and he's not being self-despising. No, John is being honestly humble, and he is resisting his own glory because when he compares himself to the glory of Christ, he realizes that his glory is not worth even comparing. That Jesus' glory is so great that John cannot help but be humble before him. I am not the Christ. That's what he says. And you know who else needs to say this? We do. We do. I am not the Christ. That's such a freeing statement. I'm not the Christ. I'm not the Christ and neither are you. You are not the Christ. That is such a freeing statement to make because what that means is you don't have to be the perfect mom or the perfect son or the perfect student or the perfect boss and you don't have to present yourself as though you are because you are not the Christ. The Christ has come and you're not it. So we're, we're going to do a little we're going to do a little exercise. This is a little different. I don't know if we've done this before. We're going to do a little call and response within the sermon, okay? So I'm going to say, who are you? And you're going to speak back to me. I am not the Christ, okay? You got it? Okay, 
Ready? Christ the King, who are you? Amen. That's right. You are not. You are not. And neither am I. Doesn't that feel good? The burden that we feel to, to solve everyone's problems, they're not our burden. I'm not the Christ. The burden to be the perfect ruling elder or deacon or pastor or Sunday school teacher or congregant, it's not your burden to bear. I am not the Christ. That is such a freeing statement for us to make. I am not the Christ. To resist our own glory by knowing who we are. But it's, it's also we resist our own glory, not just by knowing who we are, but also in knowing what is our role. What is our role? We know ourselves, and we know our role. And what was the role of John? Well, we see it in verse 23. In verse 23, he says, I'm the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. Now listen, this isn't a small job. This is a prophecy from uh, the book of Isaiah, that there would be one who would come, who would actually declare that there was someone who was coming who was greater. And so this isn't a small job that John has been given, a small responsibility, and yet notice what it is. It's simply a voice. That's it a voice declaring that there is someone better who is coming, that there is someone better who is coming after him. He is telling, just, he is telling his hearers to look and to listen, to look for the Christ to come. This reminds me of uh, Paul D. Irving. Do you all know who, anybody know who Paul D. Irving is? I knew it. None of you all know who he is, but you've heard his voice. If he walked in the room right now, none of us would know who he is. But you've seen his face. You see, Paul D. Irving, he is the House Representative Sergeant of Arms. So he, uh, he is the guy with many responsibilities, but one of them, he is the one who announces the presence of the President of the United States at the State of the Union. So now you know who he is, right? You're going to forget his name. I have to look it back up again, right? You'll forget his name, but you've heard his voice. And what's his responsibility? What's his role? Well, at the State of the Union, you've seen it. He's standing at the back of the chambers. The door is open before the president walks in. What does he declare? Mr. Speaker, the president of the United States. And then what does he do? Well, he doesn't walk down the aisle and start shaking hands and basking in all the applause and waving, right? He's like pointing to, you know, his buddies up there and the TV. Like, he doesn't do that, right? That's not what he does. What does this speaker do? He stands aside. The president of the United States, he stands aside and in walks the president and the voice fades into the background because his role, his responsibility, it is to declare that there is someone else here. And that's exactly what John's role was. His role was to declare that Jesus had come that the one that they had been waiting for, he had come. His voice rings out to declare he has not entered the room, but he has entered the world. That that was John's role, but it's also our role. Paul, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, he says that what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord. You see, our role is to make much of Jesus as we resist our own glory. As we understand ourselves and as we understand our own role, we are making much of Christ. We are making much of who he is. And in resisting our own glory, 
we're actually giving that glory away. We're giving it to another. And who we're giving it to is Jesus. And we do this because he is the Lord. We see it in verse 23. That's what John declares. I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. He is the Lord. I already mentioned that this is the prophecy of Isaiah. And so what John is doing is he is, he is acknowledging the fact that the hope of Israel, the desire of Israel was that a Messiah would come, that a Christ would come and he would be the one that would bring forth all the, the fulfillment of the promises and the prophecies, that he would be the one that would satisfy the longings of Israel and that he's here. But it's more than that, you see, because Jesus isn't simply satisfying the hopes and longings of Israel. He's satisfying the hopes of the nations. Because ever since Genesis 3, we have been longing and looking and hoping for someone to come and deal with the problem of our sin. To bring forth a solution to the rebellion of this world. And not just in this world, but in our own hearts. And so when John says, make straight the way of the Lord, what he is declaring is that the one that we have been longing for, the one that we have been hoping for, he has come. He has come. Get ready because the king you've been waiting for, he's arrived. He's arrived and he's going to deal with the rebellion of this world. That all those things that we've looked to, ourself, our own glory, our own honor, princes and presidents, governments and vocations, everything that we have looked to to try and solve this problem. This problem is being solved by the lordship of Christ. That is what he is doing. He's dealing with our rebellion, our sin. And his lordship in this, in dealing with this, isn't through arms and ammunition. Actually, Jesus shows his lordship by being the lamb. That's the other thing that John says about him in verse 29. When he sees Jesus coming, he says, Behold, the Lamb of God. You see, Jesus isn't just one who rules over us. He does. He rules and reigns over heaven and over earth. He rules over your life, but, but he's the Lamb who laid down his life. Now, we know in the sacrificial system of the Old Testament, the role of the Lamb was that it would be slaughtered. Blood would be shed and atonement would be made. And that's who Jesus is. He is the Lamb of God, the second half of that verse, who takes away the sin of the world. The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus is the greater Lamb, the perfect Lamb whose one sacrifice was enough. One sacrifice for your sins in the past and your sins today and your sins for tomorrow. That his sacrifice, his laying down his life, his shedding of his blood is enough to forgive all of your sins and to restore our rebellious hearts. That is why he came. That's who he is. To do this for his people, to make us his people. And when we know this, when we see him as he is, we glory in him. I mean, I want you to think about Isaiah 40. It's such an interesting passage. Like we sing it, right? One of my favorite songs is, is this uh, song set to this. Right? Every, every valley will be lifted up, every mountain will be laid down, right? Like, but, but what is he talking about? Like, it's, it's kind of strange, isn't it? Like, the, the rough places will be made flat. Like, why does, the, why does the prophet speak of this in Isaiah 40? 
Well, I want you to think about in terms of a royal procession because that's what he's depicting. You see, it's a royal procession. Hear these words. Make straight in the desert highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. Okay, why are all these things happening? Well, he tells us, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it. And all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And so what he's declaring is that the road will be made straight and level. It will be free from every obstacle. The path of the Lord will be free and smooth so that everyone will see the coming of the king. That everyone will see his glory being ushered in. That there will be nothing to impede our view. That we will see the king as he processes in and sits upon his throne because no mountain will hide him. And he will not be down in some valley where we cannot see and he will not bend around a corner. No, we will all see his glory. And we will give him praise. That is what we are to do. That is what the prophet is depicting here that Jesus comes in his royal procession and we will see him as he is and when we are confronted by who he is and what he has done and consider who we are in light of that we can't help but give him glory we can't help but resist our own glory and to make much of him this makes me think of uh, a time that Kat and I were in D.C. So I've only been to D.C. once, uh, but we spent a few days there with, without our kids. And my favorite part about D.C. are the monuments and the memorials, right? There's lots that you can see, the, the museums, those are cool, and, you know, the, the mall, that's great, and all that. Stuff. But it's the, it's the monuments, that, that's what I love, and the memorials. And so that's where we spend most of our time. And so, uh, so I want you to imagine, you pretty much, I, I would imagine most of you have been there, right? And if you haven't, you know it's only like a few hours away. Right, okay. Okay, um, so, um, so I want you to imagine you're there and you're at the World War II Memorial. That was my favorite, by the way, the World War II Memorial. So I'm looking at the World War II Memorial. I'm reading all the placards and, and all the amazing things that were done. And, and I want you to think, what goes through your mind as you're reading these things? You know what's not going through your mind? How great I am. Right? You're not reading those plaques, and then you walk up to the person who's standing beside you, and you start sharing about uh, how great of a high school football player you were. And you maybe were a great high school football player. Like, you don't start talking about yourself, right? And when you get to the place where Martin Luther King Jr. gave his famous speech, right, when you get to that place, you don't look down upon it and think about how you nailed that presentation at work a week ago, right? And today, today, on 9-11... When we look at our Facebook feeds and we look at the news and we see all the different things remembering what happened 15 years ago and all those men and women who, who ran into danger as people were fleeing from it, we don't think about all the great things that we have done. Right? To hear those words again, to see those amazing things that have been done, to be reminded of the glory of others, to think of your own self in that time, you would have to be a complete narcissist right? We don't do that. No, instead, we are humble, and we give glory and honor to those things that we are witnessing. 
And we remember those words that challenged our culture for the good. And we remember the deeds that were done those years ago to preserve what we have. We remember the sacrifices that were made. We don't think about ourselves. We think about the greatness that has been done. And in an even greater way, that is what we do with Christ. You see, when we look upon him, we don't think about all the things that we have done. We think about what he has done. We think about his glory and his honor. We exalt and lift him up, knowing that he has done something that we could have never done for ourselves, that he has saved and redeemed us. We make much of him and we resist ourselves. We give him the honor that is due his name. You know, when I think about John the Baptist, when I was thinking about this passage, the more I thought about, the more amazed I was about what he said and did. Because he was a man worthy of honor. Right? He was upright and pious and humble. If, if there was ever a man worthy of glory, it, it would be him, right? And yet he resists glorifying himself, and instead he gives glory to Jesus. But, but the most amazing part to me is this is that as he gives glory to Jesus, Jesus actually gives glory to him. In Matthew chapter 11, Jesus is talking about John the Baptist, and he says, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there is arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Those are pretty awesome words. Not just because of what is said, but who said them, right? For Jesus to say, of men and women, there is no one greater than this one. I mean, that is... That is the greatest compliment you could ever receive. John is honored by Jesus, but, but what's amazing even still is what Jesus says after that, because Jesus doesn't just honor John, he honors you. Because Jesus goes on and says, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Jesus is telling us that those who, seek their own, who do not seek their own glory, they will find it. And that those who are humble will be exalted and those who will be lift, lowly will be lifted up because the Lord, the Lamb of God, he will honor his disciples. He will honor you by standing before the Father in heaven and claiming you as his own. That's what he says he will do for you. He will give us glory. The very thing that we are wanting and the very thing that we are longing for is given to us by the one who is deserving of it. You see, Jesus gives us the glory, not that we deserve, but the glory that he has won for us. The glory that he gives and bestows upon you, that is what he does. The one who is honored above all others, he honors you by taking on flesh and giving his life and death and rising again that you might be the people of God so that we could say, that we could say, I am not the Christ. I am not the Christ, but we can give glory to the one who is. Friends, let's pray. God, we do thank you for your goodness and your glory to us. We thank you that you have shown care and love to us, that you have sent your son the one who has lived and died and risen again to free us from our sin, the one who is deserving of all of our glory and the one who glories in us and calls us brother and sister, friend, people of God. And for that, we praise you and thank you. We ask that you would continue to be with us as we worship you this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite the ushers to